Welcome to Recalculating Adventist Life Now. The questions of God, life, mission, and faith people are exploring in the context of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Comment, post a question, or suggest a topic for conversation at recalculating7 at gmail.com. Let's get started. I'm talking today with Dr. Robert Cundiff, president of the Northern New England Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, Skip, for having me. I'm, I'm happy that you have found time in your day, and I am aware that it's a busy day. I'm also aware that you're enduring the wonderful climate of northern New England, and it's punishing you a bit with a cold today, but thank you for continuing on. Uh, Bob, as, as we get started, would you spend a moment with us uh, who are joining this conversation just describing your own spiritual and vocational journey? Yeah, that, that's an interesting place to start. Um, you know, I think sometimes when people see me up front in a leadership role and they hear words like, pastor or elder or doctor or president, um, they kind of assume some things about you and they, they maybe assume that you came from sort of a, what I would call a, a beaver cleaver cookie cutter Adventist home. Um, and they just kind of assume that you've got that history and that rootedness there, which makes me giggle a little bit because I don't really have that history and that rootedness. I was raised in the home, um, in a home with a raging alcoholic atheist father. Um, that you know, the therapists talk about the people that have the A's, the alcoholism and the abuse and the addictions and all those different A's that the therapists like to talk about. <clears throat> so that's kind of my background and that's my upbringing. Um, it was a painful and a dysfunctional upbringing with troubled teen years and some, some phases of significant rebellion and all the rest. But at about age 17, I had a deep and radical conversion experience where the Lord just reached out and I grabbed me as a brand plucked from the fire, so to speak. And uh, I just began to experience this outrageous joy being a part of the body mm -hmm. of Christ that just hooked me and reeled me in. And that kind of started me on a journey. Within a year or two, I felt the impulses to, to enter into pastoral ministry, which was the furthest thing in the world that I had been thinking about, you know, some months or years before. Even to this day, when I go home and visit Louisville, Kentucky, I will bump into some of the old crowd or family members, and they're like, huh, a pastor? Bob? <laughs> and, and, yeah, exactly. And we, we still get a little a, a little giggle there. And my, uh, my, my standard response is, well, I think that's the gospel we teach and preach. Yes. It's a transformative gospel, and I feel like I'm a walking testimony to the power of the gospel to bring change into a person's life. You are a pastor in a southern context. Uh, uh, there's a journey from there into organizational leadership. Just give us a bit of orientation there. Yeah, so I, I served in the pulpit for 23 years um, down south, enjoyed that, had a wonderful, wonderful experience there, and oddly moved from the pulpit to the president's chair in about six months, which is which is a very unusual route. That's not kind of the usual route in which people come into administration. 
mm-hmm. when people ask for an explanation regarding that, I say, well, you have to ask God because that was absolutely his idea. Mm-hmm. I was not one of the people that had administrative aspirations. In fact, I used to sit in the back row of the pastor's meetings and uh, make fun of the guys up front. <laughs> you you can't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah they, they always wore <laughs> these dark suits, and I would always make little comments to my wife about the dark suits, you know, referring to the administrative guys. And every once in a while now, I come home from work, and my wife's like, hmm, I saw you wore a dark suit. <laughs> we'll just giggle a little bit at the journey that God has taken us on. Now, what do you miss most about pastoral life? Oh, I think it's just having a regular congregation to love. You know, I've still got lots of people contact. I preach most weekends in a pulpit somewhere in our territory, but it's a different pulpit. Mm -hmm. Um, So just having a regular congregation to love where you can go deeply into the lives, individual lives and families, that's a piece that still makes my heart ache a little bit. There's, there's a sense of community that is different in perspective uh, in organizational leadership, isn't there? But, there is. but that also provides opportunity. So if you were to describe what, is, uh, what opportunity of service in your current role in organizational leadership is most precious to your heart, how would you describe that? You know, the thing, one of the things I love the most about my current role is the mentoring of young pastors mm-hmm. and being able to shape and to guide, to clarify expectations, to help them discover their own unique areas of giftedness, and then to really leverage those areas of giftedness for the kingdom. And it feels like when you do that, you're sort of reproducing yourself in some way. You feel like yes. you have a broader impact on that wide stage than you were ever able to have on the stage of just having a singular pulpit. Okay. Okay. So there is that sense of this is the way God has led you to serve and contribute now. That is also a, a blessing. Good. It is. Yeah. Now, um, we're talking today about vision, and uh, you have gracefully said, I'm going to give this time to share with you, as uh, Skip, you've asked, uh, we'll talk about vision. Can you provide, Bob, a summary definition, if you will, a kind of that elevator definition, if you had 30 seconds in the elevator? of vision in the context of leadership. Now, we're going, we're going to move to a little deeper level in, in terms of missiology and the uh, spirituality in regard to vision. But in the calling of leadership, just give us a summary definition of vision. <clears throat> I think of vision as the process of a leader being able to create in their own mind a picture of the future, of course, of a positive future. And the picture becomes so clear, it becomes so clearly focused, and it has so much detail with it, that action steps for creating that future become clear. And as the that vision develops in the leader's mind, and as the action steps become clear, and as the leader begins to embrace those action steps, that process becomes so invigorating and exciting that others are compelled. Others begin to see the vision. They begin to see the future. They begin to connect the dots between where we're going and what our leader is doing right now to take us there. 
and they're just compelled to sign on to be a part of that. So a vision is an ideal image, um, a picture of the future. Um, I'm going to challenge you a bit, Bob, because all of us um, in the conversation, wherever we are listening to it, are saying to ourselves, all right, vision. I, I want to kind of understand this vision thing. And we grow as we kind of say, okay, now let's think about this. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting we arrive at, oh, the right spot. I'm suggesting that we explore and that we think, um, all of us in this conversation today. If, if, if we are in a movement inspired every member called to service called to ministry gifted for that ministry by their relationship with christ and the indwelling of the holy spirit it's kind of a every member a minister theology of ministry how important is it that the vision be a shared vision. Yes, yes. So I was I was interviewing for the position of president, and I was mm -hmm. sitting with a group of people, none of whom I knew. I did not know a single person in the room. And the question was asked, what is your vision for our conference territory? Mm -hmm. Now, it, it seems that the right answer would be to, to articulate a compelling vision that would excite and that would enthuse and that people could jump on board with. However, as I put myself in their role instead of in my role, I think that I would be offended if a man I did not know came into the room to interview as our leader and then told me what the vision was and told me where we were going to do. Key point. He, he, he didn't even know my name. He had not even shaken my hand. He knows nothing about my culture, my context, my family, my, my biography. You know, they say our theology is, is influenced by our personal biography to 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 articulate a vision outside the context of relationship and experience and history ah. before, that, that, that would offend me. And so I chose something that was counterintuitive when I answered that question. I said, I'm not here to articulate a vision for you before I even get to know you or know your territory or know the challenges or the strengths or the weaknesses or the resources that we have available. I said, a strong, compelling vision that we will all embrace is a, is a vision that we will develop together. Uh, and, and that's not a one-day process. That's a multi-month process as, as we come to know each other and to love each other and enter into community together. And then together to go before the cross and to seek for what God's vision is for our territory. So, you know, I, I felt a little insecure giving that answer. Well, what's your vision? And I'm basically saying, I don't have a vision. But what I was articulating was the process in which we would discover a shared vision together, because at the end of the day, a shared vision is going to be an, a, a vision that they're going to embrace and support. And it's one that will have longevity rather than sort of a presidential splash and dash. Well, yeah, Bob, I would suggest that the response that you gave at that moment is a powerful vision. And here's what I mean by that. If you are articulating a vision of a body of people committed to Christ who interact in relationship with God, trusting God, who 
as a triune community of love inspires and moves that body in a shared ministry and a shared vision, yeah, that counters the human tendency to say, uh, I'm in charge of the vision. I have yes. the vision. You guys yes. need to listen. It's a vision of a spirit-empowered body, which, yeah, it, it's sometimes hard for us as humans to actually hear and accept and embrace that, but it's it's powerful when we think about it. So, yeah, I think that the idea that we're all part of one ministering body is itself a vision. And the only way you can faithfully articulate that is we will prayerfully together ask God and a powerful vision will emerge. Excellent. Is that is that finding a responsive chord as you think about it, it Bob? Yeah, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. Um, and, and once they understood what I was saying, is, yeah. is that it, it was going to be a more contemporary model of leadership. That it was the old model of leadership, the autocratic style of leadership, to come in and say, "I'm the leader, yeah. and this is your vision, and you will like it. And if you need anything else, I will let you know. And yes. and now I expect you to obey." That's the old model. But to come in and to say <clears throat> there's more of a flat leadership structure. We're part of a body. We're part of the body of Christ. And we don't rule over each other. Christ is the head. And as each individual submits, member of the body submits to the body, then the head controls the entire body. And that's the process. That's the community. That's the process of discovery that I want to be a part of. Well, once they got over their initial shock, they all jumped on board and said, I think that's our guy. I think that's going to be our new leader. Well, and you're you're saying, Bob, you are articulating that God, God Himself envisions a relationship with His body that empowers everyone in leadership and in service in some way. If we're if we're gifted by helps and make a nice place physically for people to gather or serve people's physical needs, or if we're thought leaders or organizational and structural leaders, all of us are part of this empowered body. So your vision then, you're saying, you're actually saying to us, look, God has a way for us, and if we'll listen and pray. So you're casting a vision as you describe that vision. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Now, how um, how have you seen various approaches to forming shared vision? There have been times in your ministry journey that you have likely seen people that are able to inspire and help a group come to a shared vision, while others less successful. And you have you've been a student of that. Uh, either intuitively or intentionally. Can you share with us some learnings along the way in that yeah, regard? I think I have, I have seen vision development done very poorly. And at times, undoubtedly, I have done it poorly myself. And other times, I think I've done it well. And, mm -hmm. and if there was one word to describe the difference in those experiences, the word would be collaborative. Is the yes. vision developed collaboratively? Or is it done kind of in a cowboy style where the vision is dependent upon one person and personality and energy and charisma? 
if the vision is personality and person dependent, I would argue that that's not a vision that has longevity for the organization. But when yeah. it's done collaboratively, <clears throat> when there's buy-in across the board from leaders, I think that you're in a safer position um, when, when leaders come and go for people to continue with that vision and to continue to pursue the vision. You know, if it's a vision that's that's leader dependent, then we're saying that when that leader leaves, apparently God changes his mind. Uh-huh. That, that, that gives a lot of power to a leader. I, I don't think I have or should have that kind of power. That That's an interesting, that's a really interesting comment. I find myself wanting to write that down. Well, obviously God was mistaken because uh, now the vision is interesting. So there's a sense in which you, you are affirming that people um, are effective in helping us as a body of believers in Christ, followers of Christ, when they say we ourselves, all of us together, have to think, pray, relate, and and embrace a vision. Now, the, the vi- when you're talking about vision, you're talking about an ideal image of the future. You're not talking about a particular strategy like we are going to do this on X date plans. Uh, Plans emerge out of vision, don't they? You're not saying Correct. Correct. Uh, the vision is we start, uh, uh, we call for our offering after the children start. That's right. So the vision art would be the overarching statement, and out of the vision, individual strategies emerge. They all uplink to the vision. They're informed by the vision. They're guided by the vision. But in and of themselves, they are not the, the vision. They're a way to accomplish the vision. And so there, there's maybe a little bit of a Christmas tree with, with mm-hmm. the vision being the star on the top. Ah. And you can decorate that tree with all kinds of things that sort of uplink to, mm-hmm. to the vision, to support the vision, but they themselves do not embody the vision. That's an interesting image. It's like those things flow uh, along in the process. In, in your mentoring of young pastors and your conversation with uh, leadership in local congregations, uh, and maybe even, okay, let's be honest, our conversations with ourselves from time to time, when we find ourselves in any context or point relying on selling the vision mm-hmm. as opposed to helping folk realize, see, form, led by God in a shared vision. How, what, what counsel do you give to people to, to keep them in a territory of prizing shared vision? Yeah, I, I think that when we are in the position of needing to sell the vision, it may be an indicator that we haven't done the proper discovery work to actually discover that vision. Mm. To me, it feels a little bit more like when there's something wonderful that is hidden behind a curtain and my job is to go and to pull back the curtain and to put my arm around someone and and to lead them up and to say let me show you something i'm standing there with my arm around them Ah. and i reach forward and i pull back the curtain and then together we look in and we see this wonderful thing and simultaneously involuntarily we both go ah Ah. i I think that's an indicator that we've got the right vision scripture 
uh, our faith history, um, all of those are things that you can say, hey, let's together consider this. Excellent. Which actually, uh, Bob, uh, provides in our conversation something of a segue to um, a perhaps more complicated level of conversation about vision, and that is missiological and then at an even um, deeper uh, and a, perhaps more dangerous in terms of misunderstanding, but to grow and to think we, we should be able to explore and examine these things, a missiological and a spiritual dimension of vision. Now, let, let's start with a missiological um, exploration of the idea of vision. And, and I think what I would uh, ask us to reflect on for a moment is the origin of the faith movement that I prize and I know you prize and that we're blessed in. Now, in our conversation are people who are blessed in our shared journey as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, people who are in the journey but may not be feeling such a blessing, or people who are part of our conversation who have other faith tradition experiences, and that's great. I, I think we all explore where were we birthed and how do we see God in that? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to reflect for a moment on the birth of our faith movement and what vision inspired those who launched our faith movement. What was the context? What was the vision driving this faith movement? Yeah. You know, my understanding of our history, Skip, is that <clears throat> When our, when our founders discovered Adventism, and, and let me take a moment and define that. I, I'm not using the term Adventism as a denomination, a creed, a, a movement, the organization that we refer to as Adventism today, but mm -hmm. I want to take it back to its pure roots. Okay. Adventism, the root word Advent means coming. When they discovered the doctrine of the coming of Christ, what the Bible teaches that Christ is coming again in a literal, physical, visible way. My understanding of our history is that they were not trying to create a new denomination. It wasn't, wow, we've learned about the second coming of Christ. Let's go out and start a new denomination, and we'll call it the Seventh-day Adventists. They were fully anticipating that the faith traditions they were a part of, largely Methodism and Baptist, the Baptist faith, some other faiths, they were largely anticipating that those faith movements would embrace this new doctrine. They would embrace this new wonderful truth they had learned from Scripture that Jesus is coming again, mm -hmm. <clears throat> that there would be a now a, an, an Adventist focus within those faith traditions. Mm -hmm. But when that was not received as heartily as they anticipated that it would be, that doctrine of, of the preeminence of the coming of Christ was so important to them that at, at that point, our, our denomination kind of began to take shape. It began to spring up around that movement. In fact, that doctrine is so important to us today that we embed the doctrine in our very name as Adventists. We are people that look forward to the second coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that's a little bit of the history and the context of, of how I understand our, the missiological movement and the, and the focus for us as Adventists. Now, yeah, Bob, that's a very important perspective because 
uh, in that context of the second wave of the uh, Advent awakening of the 19th century, people of various Christian persuasions, if, if you will, mm -hmm. celebrated uh, that hope. And they went through uh, a celebration that became so concrete that a disappointment res resulted. But it's, it's worth thinking about that the disappointment uh, is on two levels. Uh, one, uh, the concreteness of the expectation of Christ's return in the mid-19th century did not occur but also in the disappointment of Christians embracing that hope, you might say. And, and I'm, I'm not referring simply to regathering after an initial, literal, concrete disappointment. I, it's more of a, you know, when you have a, a wonderful story to share and someone doesn't receive it, uh, there is a sense of disappointment that accompanies that. So, uh, yeah, we're birthed missiologically in a vision of announcing a message of hope. A and one could say that that is very much a part of our DNA. We are a movement that embraces hope so clearly. A and so let's, let's move then to... The, the sense of the spiritual meaning. And I think the word hope has spiritual significance that enlightens the idea of vision. Uh, here's what I mean, Bob, and you know, I want to ask you to reflect on it a bit. Now, yes, granted, this becomes dangerous thinking if somebody misunderstands it, but, but let's think carefully. If vision relates to the best of things, uh, the ideals cherished in hope, especially spiritual hope. The words of Jesus to his disciples who were going to experience that disappointment in the space of time until he returned take on a dimension of hope that finds a here and now expression right linked to the end hope. So it becomes, hope becomes actually a little more complicated than we may have first re realized. It is somehow a way of lifting the meaning of the here and now. For, for the Adventist person who hopes in the return of Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean retreating and just assigning the here and now to nothingness, it adds whole new meaning to the here and now. It makes the here and now more relevant. We live in a space and time in which the reality of the hope of Jesus coming changes everything. It just, <laughs> it just makes time different. And instead of simply dismissing suffering as something that will be done away with in the eschaton, it means that, listen, in our suffering on this earth, we are not victims. We are saved 
by the grace of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It just, it, 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 what do you think, Bob? Mm -hmm. Am I relating at all to that idea of vision? Oh, Skip, you're getting my heart thumping. That that just makes me want to get in the pulpit and preach. Yes. The, thought, the thoughts that you're generating for me. It, that's a fascinating question. You know, I hear you asking, does, does vision change when we put it in the context of the faith movement? How does the element of faith in that equation of vision development, how does that element of faith change the outcome or the vision or the development of vision? And I think it absolutely does. Because if, if we're going to do our faith right, then that would compel us that our vision reaches even higher, that we would raise the bar. And why would I say that? Well, because we have the resources of heaven available to us. I mean, if we have resurrection power available to us, yeah. if, if our heavenly father owns a cattle on a thousand hills and he sends us his Holy Spirit to lead us in a journey of sanctification, where he actually recreates in us <clears throat> the Father's character. We now bear the stamp of his character. If the Holy Spirit brings his gifts and his fruit into our lives, then we have every reason to have a vision that is clearly out of this world, because those are resources that are not <clears throat> necessarily available to those that are, that are not people of faith to people that, that do not have the blessing of living and walking and working under the unction of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. We have a library of resources available to us that are, that are not available to the everyday person outside of the faith community. And as such, I think that we can create a vision that is truly otherworldly. Uh -huh. Yeah, when, when Jesus uh, talked to people who would be followers, uh, his word shared in Matthew's narrative in chapter five, you know, blessed are the peacemakers or, or uh, mercy or, or those who mourn. He's using language that is here and now and relevant to the moment as though time is transformed. Our hope of the return of Jesus Christ then transforms life and time today in the present, that uh, it, when Jesus shared the parables, when the disciples said, you spoke of the temple being destroyed, what's that about? And Jesus described the coming separation and the waiting time. Each of those parables describe people or actions that were in present time. The good steward treats the others, the colleagues, the, uh, differently. Uh, the good neighbor now is different, not just because they're more moral or mm -hmm. something, although it does transform ethics and morality, of course, but because they are in a time redeemed. It's like yeah, I, maybe it's because I've grown older in years, Bob, but somebody says to me, when is Jesus coming again? And I say, well, I'm certain he's going to be here in just a few years. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm now retired, and I will take my rest, not just in retirement, but from the journeys of this life before too many more years pass. And so I realize 
that it is time right now that's different because of the coming of Jesus. Mm. I, and, and I actually think that I can celebrate the end of time more clearly when I realized Jesus was saying to us, because you embrace my promise to return again, the way you spend your time now is guided by a different vision. That vision transforms your life today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, Bob, uh, coming now then, okay, so we'll, we'll come full, full circle. How would you verbalize uh, the shared vision of our Adventist faith today? Mm. <clears throat> that question is one that also touches me in a deep place. Sometimes I feel like we have a little bit of a, a theological identity dysphoria. Mm -hmm. and, and let me make a statement that may carry with it a bit of shock value. I believe that our identity as a people is not Adventism. I believe our identity is Christianity. Mm -hmm. Our mission is Adventism. Adventism is the, method, the methodology in which we share Christianity. And, and as Adventists, we absolutely have something unique and wonderful to share. We make significant contributions to the broader theological evangelical community. But I think that when our, when our identity becomes Adventism instead of Christianity, I think that puts us at risk of stepping too far or to the right or too far to the left in a number of areas. And I think that in some ways it eclipses the message of Christianity in a way that is not helpful either to the kingdom or to our own identity as a people. Yeah, and so Bob, when if I if I am to ponder a question like, uh, does our vision need to progress? You have just in in that last minute said. Uh, progress isn't the right word. We need to constant, and maybe maybe it is, but I, I hear a challenge to us to prayerfully think about uh, the true meaning of an Adventist uh, vision, a vision of God for his people, that it's Christ-centered, uh, that the incarnation of God in our midst be the transforming core of that mm -hmm. vision. So it may, it, it, you may be saying, be sure we don't stray from God's vision for his church. That might mean rethinking. It might mean being open to self-criticism. Is, is that it is. <clears throat> Unless someone is uncomfortable with, with my comment because they feel that I am tampering with the fundamentals of Adventism, let me be very clear about that, that in no way am I talking about the fundamental beliefs of our faith, our creed, our doctrine, our teaching. I'm not having a theological discussion as much as I'm having a methodological discussion. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like sometimes when you, when you sit with a group and you develop a mission statement, and people in their mission statement, they want to reproduce the 28 fundamental beliefs. Well, that's not the purpose of a mission statement. A mission statement understands 
what we believe. And a mission statement seeks to say, now, what are we going to do about what we believe? Mm-hmm. So when, when I sit with a group and they say, well, that mission statement could, could be a part of any church in the evangelical world. It doesn't say anything about us as Adventists. I say, well, the mission statement assumes that we know who we are. We are Adventists. So it's okay that we don't mention the three angels' messages in our mission statement. We're having a methodological discussion, really, more than a theological discussion. Now, we, we can't completely parse those two out because there, there, of course, is overlap that takes place. But when I, when I make these comments, they're not comments that are designed to alter our 28 fundamental beliefs, but rather I'm talking about the application of those beliefs to a contemporary world, to a success, secular society, and to a group of people that do not necessarily know Christ. And I think that that is an evaluation that we should continually be a part, be, be, um, be evaluating and improving upon and seeking to do better. And I think that as society evolves and as as secular society grows and fractures and diversifies, I think that we need to be doing the same thing in the church, that we're always adapting our methodology of how it is that we share our theology with people Mm -hmm. that don't know Christ. So the, uh, a, a, a vision rooted in a sound theology of a God of love incarnate in Christ, returning to restore uh, life on earth, that Adventist uh, hope kind of means we always need to be asking about methodology then. It starts with the right theology. Yes, yes. So go ahead, Bob. Yeah, and our methodology built upon that theology, <clears throat> our methodology should be creative, it should be dynamic, it should be ever-evolving. There should be a variety of methodologies and a very, very broad repertoire of methodologies that we can embrace to share that theological message. But I, my fear is that sometimes when you say that, people think that you're tampering with the theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I hear you. So uh, it has to... We all have to engage in conversation in which we listen to each other and pray and seek this. Do you do you have a do you have a wrap up sentence or two as we come to the end of this conversation, Bob? Counsel that you would have for uh, persons engaging in our local congregations, leadership in our local congregations regarding forming and casting vision? I think that my wrap-up comment would be that as we, and and I like what you touched on there just a moment ago when you said when we listen prayerfully, Mm -hmm. and and my, my burden is that we have more dialogue where we practice excellent, excellent listening skills because when we're good listeners, we're good lovers of our brothers and sisters, and we love people well when we do that. I long for us to to grow in the area of quality listening and quality speaking, and then the rapport that that puts on the table to build relationship so that we can come to that place of unity where the, where the body is really, really working in rhythm, and every member of the body is, is taking its orders from the head. And when every member of the body cooperates with the head, then the body can move into this wonderful, wonderful rhythm 
and perform really complicated tasks. You know, when you think physiologically of the task of running, all of the body parts moving together and, and dealing with the surface of the earth and making all the adjustments and balance and everything, it's really a tremendously complicated task. And that only works well when every part of the body is connected well to the head and is executing the head's orders in a, in a sort of concert symmetry type of way. And that's just, that's part of my vision for how I would love to see the body of Christ function in the context of the Seventh-day Adventist faith. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah. Thank you. Bob, thank you for joining the conversation today. Thank you for having me. Welcome, uh, folk. Uh, please do um, let us know what you uh, might suggest as a future conversation, and um, uh, let us know uh, if you have a comment or a question. Contact us at recalculating7 at gmail.com. So thank you all for joining the conversation. Until next time, keep thinking. Keep believing.